Section nine of the Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume One by James Boswell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Proposals to print Politian, Anno Domini, seventeen thirty four. Johnson returned to Lichfield early in seventeen thirty four, and in August, footnote, Hawkins gives the following extract from Johnson's Annales. Friday, August the twenty-seventh, ten at night. This day I have trifled away, except that I have attended the school in the morning. I read to-night in Rogers' sermon. To-night I began the breakfast law, sick, anew, end of footnote. That year he made an attempt to procure some little subsistence by his pen, for he published proposals for printing by subscription the Latin poems of Politian. Footnote. May we not trace a fanciful similarity between Politian and Johnson? Huatius, speaking of Paulus Pelissonius Fontenarius, says, In quo natura ut olam in angelo politiano, deformitarem oris excellentis ingenii prestantia compassabit comment de rebus adeum pertinax edition amstel seventeen eighteen page two hundred boswell in paulus palisonius fontenarius we have difficulty in detecting madame de sevigne's friend pelisson of whom monsieur de guirage used the phrase qu'il abusait de la permission qu'on les homme d'être laid see madame de sevigne's letter fifth of january sixteen seventy four croker angeli politiani poevata latina quibus notas cum historia latina poesios apetrace evo ad politiani tempora deducta et vita politiani fusius quam antehat enerata edited samuel johnson footnote the book was to contain more than thirty sheets the price to be two shillings and sixpence at the time of subscribing and two shillings and sixpence at the delivery of a perfect book inquires boswell among the books in his library at the time of his decease i found a very old and curious edition of the works of Politian, which appeared to belong to Pembroke College, Oxford, Hawkins. In his last work he shows his fondness for modern Latin poetry. He says, Pope had sought for images and sentiments in a region not known to have been explored by many other of the English writers. He had consulted the modern writers of Latin poetry, a class of authors whom Boileau endeavoured to bring into contempt and were too generally neglected. Johnson's works, volume eight, page two nine nine, end of footnote. It appears that his brother Nathaniel, footnote, a writer in Notes and Queries, says that he has a letter written by Nathaniel, in which he makes mention of his brother, scarcely using him with common civility, and says, "I believe I shall go to Georgia in about a fortnight." Nathaniel died in Lichfield in 1737, see post December the 2nd, 1784, for his epitaph. Among the manuscripts in Pembroke College Library 
are bills for books receipted by Nathaniel Johnson and by Sarah Johnson, his mother. She writes like a person of little education. End of footnote. Had taken up his father's trade, for it is mentioned that subscriptions are taken in by the editor or N. Johnson, bookseller of Lichfield. Notwithstanding the merit of Johnson and the cheap price at which this book was offered, there were not subscribers enough to ensure a sufficient sale, so the work never appeared, and probably never was executed. First letter to Edward Cave, Itart 25. We find him again this year at Birmingham, and there is preserved the following letter from him to Mr. Edward Cave, the original compiler and editor of the Gentleman's Magazine. Footnote Miss Cave, the grandniece of Mr. Edward Cave, has obligingly shown me the originals of this and the other letters of Dr. Johnson to him, which were first published in the Gentleman's Magazine with notes by Mr. John Nichols, the worthy and indefatigable editor of that valuable miscellany, signed N some of which I shall occasionally transcribe in the course of this work, Boswell. I was able to examine some of these letters while they were still in the possession of one of Cave's collateral descendants, and I have in one or two places corrected errors of transcription. End of footnote. To Mr. Cave, November the 25th, 1734, Sir as you appear no less sensible than your readers of the defects of your poetical article you will not be displeased if in order to the improvement of it i communicate to you the sentiments of a person who will undertake on reasonable terms sometimes to fill a column his opinion is that the public would not give you a bad reception if besides the current wit of the month which a critical examination would generally reduce to a narrow compass, you admitted not only poems, inscriptions, etc., never printed before, which he will sometimes supply you with, but likewise short literary dissertations in Latin or English, critical remarks on the authors, ancient or modern, forgotten poems that deserve revival, or loose pieces like Floyd's, worth preserving. Footnote, Sir John Floyd's Treatise on Cold Bath, Gentleman's Magazine, 1734, page 197, Boswell. This letter shows how uncommon a thing a cold bath was. Floyer, after recommending a general method of bleeding and purging, before the patient uses cold bathing, continues, I have commonly cured the rickets by dipping children of a year old in the bath every morning, and this wonderful effect has encouraged me to dip four boys at Lichfield in the font at their baptism, and none have suffered any inconvenience by it. Locke, in his Treatise on Education, has recommended cold bathing for children. Johnson, in his review of Lucas's Essay on Waters, post-1756, thus attacks cold bathing. It is incident to physicians, I am afraid, beyond all other men, to mistake subsequence for consequence. 
'The old gentleman,' says Dr. Lucas, 'that uses the cold bath, enjoys in return an uninterrupted state of health.' This instance does not prove that the cold bath produces health, but only that it will not always destroy it. He is well with the bath, he would have been well without it. Literary Magazine, page 229, end of footnote. By this method your literary article, for so it might be called, will, he thinks, be better recommended to the public than by low jests, awkward buffoonery, or the dull scurrilities of either party. If such a correspondence will be agreeable to you, be pleased to inform me in two posts what the conditions are on which you shall expect it. Your late offer, footnote, a prize of fifty pounds for the best poem on Life, Death, Judgment, Heaven and Hell, see Gentleman's Magazine, Volume 4, page 560, N, Boswell, Cave sometimes offered subjects for poems and proposed prizes for the best performers. The first prize was fifty pounds, for which, being but newly acquainted with wealth and thinking the influence of fifty pounds extremely great, he expected the first authors of the kingdom to appear as competitors, and offered the allotment of the prize to the universities. But when the time came, no name was seen among the writers that had ever been seen before. The universities and several private men rejected the province of assigning the prize. Johnson's Works, Volume 6, page 432, Gives me no reason to distrust your generosity. If you engage in any literary projects besides this paper, I have other designs to impart. If I could be secure from having others reap the advantage of what I should hint, your letter, by being directed to S. Smith, to be left at the castle in Birmingham, Warwickshire, footnote, I suspect that Johnson wrote the castle in Birmingham, end of footnote, will reach your humble servant. Mr. Cave has a note on this letter, answered December the 2nd, but whether anything was done in consequence of it, we are not informed. Verses on a sprig of myrtle, Anno Domini, seventeen thirty four. Johnson had, from his early youth, been sensible to the influence of female charms. When at Starbridge School, he was much enamoured of Olivia Lloyd, a young Quaker, to whom he wrote a copy of verses which I have not been able to recover. But with what facility and elegance he could warble the amorous lay will appear from the following lines which he wrote for his friend Mr. Edmund Hector. Verses to a lady on receiving from her a sprig of myrtle. What hopes, what terrors does thy gift create, ambiguous emblem of uncertain fate? The myrtle ensign of supreme command consigned by venus to melissa's hand not less capricious than a reigning fair now grants and now rejects a lover's prayer in myrtle shades oft sings the happy swain in myrtle shades despairing ghosts complain the myrtle crowns the happy lover's heads the unhappy lover's grave the myrtle spreads 
Oh, then the meaning of thy gift in part, and ease the throbbings of an anxious heart. Soon must this bow, as you shall fix his doom, adorn Philander's head, or grace his tomb. Footnote. Mrs. Piozzi gives the following account of this little composition from Dr. Johnson's own relation to her, on her inquiring whether it was rightly attributed to him. I think it is now just forty years ago that a young fellow had a sprig of myrtle given him by a girl he courted, and asked me to write him some verses that he might present her in return. I promised, but forgot but when he called for his lines at the time agreed on, sit still a moment, says I, dear Mond. See post, May the 7th, 1773, for Johnson's way of contracting the names of his friends. And I'll fetch them thee. So stepped aside for five minutes, and wrote the nonsense you now keep such a stir about. Anecdotes, page 34. Boswell's controversy with Miss Seward, Itar twenty-five. In my first edition, I was induced to doubt the authenticity of this account by the following circumstantial statement in a letter to me from Miss Seward of Lichfield. I know those verses were addressed to Lucy Cordar when he was enamoured of her in his boyish days, two or three years before he had seen her mother, his future wife. He wrote them at my grandfather's, and gave them to Lucy in the presence of my mother, to whom he showed them on the instant. She used to repeat them to me when I asked her for the verses Dr. Johnson gave her on a sprig of myrtle, which she had stolen or begged from her bosom. We all know honest Lucy Porter to have been incapable of the mean vanity of applying to herself a compliment not intended for her. Such was this lady's statement, which I make no doubt she supposed to be correct. But it shows how dangerous it is to trust too implicitly to traditional testimony and ingenious inference. For Mr. Hector has lately assured me that Mrs. Piozzi's account is in this instance accurate, and that he was the person for whom Johnson wrote those verses, which have been erroneously ascribed to Mr. Hammond. I am obliged in so many instances to notice Mrs. Piozzi's incorrectness of relation that I gladly seize this opportunity of acknowledging that, however often, she is not always inaccurate. The author having been drawn into a controversy with Miss Anna Seward in consequence of the preceding statement, which may be found in the Gentleman's Magazine, volumes 53 and 54, received the following letter from Mr. Edmund Hector on the subject. Dear Sir, I am sorry to see you are engaged in altercation with a lady who seems unwilling to be convinced of her errors. Surely it would be more ingenuous to acknowledge than to persevere. Lately, in looking over some papers I meant to burn, I found the original manuscript of the myrtle with the date on it. 1731, which I have enclosed. The true history, which I could swear to, is as follows. Mr. Morgan Graves, the elder brother of a worthy clergyman near Bath, with whom I was acquainted, 
waited upon a lady in this neighbourhood who at parting presented him the branch he showed it me and wished much to return the compliment in verse i applied to johnson who was with me and in about half an hour dictated the verses which i sent to my friend i most solemnly declare at that time johnson was an entire stranger to the porter family and it was almost two years after that i introduced him to the acquaintance of porter whom i bought my clothes of if you intend to convince this obstinate woman and to exhibit to the public the truth of your narrative you are at liberty to make what use you please of this statement i hope you will pardon me for taking up so much of your time wishing you multos et felices annos i shall subscribe myself your obliged humble servant e hector birmingham january the ninth seventeen ninety four for a further account of Boswell's controversy with Miss Seward, see Post, June the twenty-fifth, seventeen eighty-four. End of footnote. His juvenile attachments to the fair sex were, however, very transient, and it is certain that he formed no criminal connection whatsoever. Mister Hector, who lived with him in his younger days in the utmost intimacy and social freedom, has assured me that even at that ardent season his conduct was strictly virtuous in that respect and that though he loved to exhilarate himself with wine he never knew him intoxicated but once mrs porter i type twenty five in a man whom religious education has secured from licentious indulgences the passion of love when once it has seized him is exceedingly strong being unimpaired by dissipation and totally concentrated in one object this was experienced by johnson when he became the fervent admirer of mrs porter after her first husband's death Footnote. in the registry of st martin's church birmingham are the following entries baptisms november the eighth seventeen fifteen lucy daughter of henry porter january the twenty ninth seventeen seventeen old style jarvis henry son of henry porter burials august the third seventeen thirty four henry porter of edgebaston there were two sons one captain porter who died in seventeen sixty three croker's boswell page one thirty the other who died in seventeen eighty three post november the twenty ninth seventeen eighty three and a footnote johnson's personal appearance anno domini seventeen thirty four miss porter told me that when he was first introduced to her mother his appearance was very forbidding he was then lean and lank so that his immense structure of bones was hideously striking to the eye and the scars of the scrofula were deeply visible Footnote. according to malone reynolds said that he had paid attention to johnson's limbs and far from being unsightly he deemed them well formed priors malone page one seven five mrs piozzi says 
His stature was remarkably high, and his limbs exceedingly large. His features were strongly marked, and his countenance particularly rugged, though the original complexion had certainly been fair, a circumstance somewhat unusual. His sight was near and otherwise imperfect, yet his eyes, though of a light grey colour, were so wild, so piercing, and at times so fierce, that fear was, I believe, the first emotion in the hearts of all his beholders. Piozzi's Anecdotes, page 297, see post, end of the book, and Boswell's Hebrides near the beginning. End of footnote. He also wore his hair. Footnote. If Johnson wore his own hair at Oxford, it must have exposed him to ridicule. Graves, the author of The Spiritual Quixote, tells us that Shenstone had the courage to wear his own hair, though it often exposed him to the ill-natured remarks of people who had not half his sense. After I was elected at All Souls, where there was often a party of loungers in the gateway, on my expostulating with Mr. Shenstrom for not visiting me so often as usual, he said he was ashamed to face his enemies in the gate, end of footnote, which was straight and stiff and separated behind, and he often had seemingly convulsive starts and odd gesticulations which tended to excite at once surprise and ridicule. Mrs. Porter, was so much engaged by his conversation that she overlooked all these external disadvantages and said to her daughter, This is the most sensible man that I ever saw in my life. Though Mrs. Porter was double the age of Johnson, footnote, Mrs. Johnson was born on February the 4th, 1688-9, Malone. She was married on July the ninth, seventeen thirty five, in St. Werburgh's Church, Derby, as is shown by the following copy of the marriage register. Seventeen thirty five, July the ninth, married Samuel Johnson of the parish of St. Mary's in Mitchfield, and Elizabeth Porter of the parish of St. Philip in Birmingham. Notes and queries. At the time of their marriage, therefore, she was forty six and Johnson only two months short of twenty-six. End of footnote. And her person and manner, as described to me by the late Mr. Garrick, were by no means pleasing to others. She must have had a superiority of understanding and talents, as she certainly inspired him with a more than ordinary passion, and she, having signified her willingness to accept of his hand, he went to Lichfield to ask his mother's consent to the marriage, which he could not but be conscious was a very imprudent scheme, both on account of their disparity of years and her want of fortune. Footnote. The author of The Memoirs of the Life and Writings of Dr. Johnson, 1785, page 25, says, Mrs. Porter's husband died insolvent, but her settlement was secured. She brought her second husband about seven or eight hundred pounds, a great part of which was expended in fitting up a house for a boarding school. That she had some money 
can be almost inferred from what we are told by Boswell and Hawkins. How otherwise was Johnson able to hire and furnish a large house for his school? Boswell says that he had but three pupils. Hawkins gives him a few more. His number, he writes, at no time exceeded eight, and of those not all were boarders. After nearly twenty months of married life, when he went to London, he had, Boswell says, a little money. It was not till a year later still that he began to write for the gentleman's magazine. If Mrs. Johnson had not money, how did she and her husband live from July 1735 to the spring of 1738? It could scarcely have been on the profits made from their school. Inference, however, is no longer needful, as there is positive evidence. Mr. Timmins, in his Dr. Johnson in Birmingham, page 4, writes, My friend Mr. Joseph Hill says, A copy of an old deed which has recently come into my hands shows that a hundred pounds of Mrs. Johnson's fortune was left in the hands of a Birmingham attorney named Thomas Perks, who died insolvent and in 1745 a bulky deed gave his creditors seven shillings and fourpence in the pound. Among the creditors for one hundred pounds were Samuel Johnson, gentleman, and Elizabeth his wife, executors of the last will and testament of Harry Porter, later Birmingham aforesaid, woollen draper deceased. Johnson and his wife were almost the only creditors who did not sign the deed, their seals being left void. It is doubtful, therefore, whether they ever obtained the amount of the composition, thirty-six pounds, thirteen shillings and fourpence. End of footnote. But Mrs. Johnson knew too well the ardour of her son's temper, and was too tender a parent to oppose his inclinations. Johnson's marriage, Anno Domini, 1736. I know not for what reason the marriage ceremony was not performed at Birmingham, but a resolution was taken that it should be at Derby, for which place the bride and bridegroom set out on horseback, I suppose in very good humour. But though Mr. Topham Beauclair used archly to mention Johnson's having told him with much gravity, Sir, it was a love marriage on both sides, I have had from my illustrious friend the following curious account of their journey to church upon the nuptial morn. Ninth of July. Sir, she had read the old romances, and had got into her head the fantastical notion that a woman of spirit should use her lover like a dog. So, sir, at first she told me that I rode too fast, and she could not keep up with me, and when I rode a little slower, she passed me and complained that I lagged behind. I was not to be made the slave of caprice, and I resolved to begin as I meant to end. I therefore pushed on briskly till I was fairly out of her sight. The road lay between two hedges, so I was sure she could not miss it, and I contrived that she should soon come up with me. When she did, I observed her to be in tears. 
this it must be allowed was a singular beginning of connubial felicity but there is no doubt that johnson though he thus showed a manly firmness proved a most affectionate and indulgent husband to the last moment of mrs johnson's life and in his prayers and meditations we find very remarkable evidence that his regard and fondness for her never ceased even after her death his school at edgell i taught twenty seven he now set up a private academy Footnote. sir walter scott has recorded lord Affleck's sneer of most sovereign contempt while he described johnson as a domini moan an old domini he kept a school and called it an academy croker's boswell page three nine seven note end of footnote for which purpose he hired a large house well situated near his native city in the gentleman's magazine for seventeen thirty seven there is the following advertisement at edgell near lichfield footnote edgell is two miles west of lichfield harwood's lichfield page five six four end of footnote in staffordshire young gentlemen are boarded and taught the latin and greek languages by samuel johnson but the only pupils that were put under his care were the celebrated david garrick and his brother george and a mr offerley a young gentleman of good fortune who died early as yet his name had nothing of that celebrity which afterwards commanded the highest attention and respect of mankind had such an advertisement appeared after the publication of his london or his rambler or his dictionary how it would have burst upon the world with what eagerness would the great and the wealthy have embraced an opportunity of putting their sons under the learned tuition of samuel johnson the truth however is that he was not so well qualified for being a teacher of elements and a conductor in learning by regular gradations as men of inferior powers of mind his own acquisitions had been made by fits and starts by violent eruptions into the regions of knowledge and it could not be expected that his impatience would be subdued and his impetuosity restrained so as to fit him for a quiet guide to novices the art of communicating instruction of whatever kind is much to be valued and i have ever thought that those who devote themselves to this employment and do their duty with diligence and success are entitled to very high respect from the community as johnson himself often maintained Footnote johnson in more than one passage in his writings seems to have in mind his own days as a schoolmaster thus in his life of milton he says this is the period of his life from which all his biographers seem inclined to shrink they are unwilling that milton should be degraded to a schoolmaster but since it cannot be denied that he taught boys one finds that he taught for nothing and another that his motive was only zeal for the propagation of learning and virtue and all tell 
what they do not know to be true, only to excuse an act which no wise man will consider as in itself disgraceful. His father was alive, his allowance was not ample, and he supplied its deficiencies by an honest and useful employment. Johnson's Works, Volume 7, page 75. In the life of Blackmore, he says, in some part of his life, it is not known when, his indigence compelled him to teach a school, and humiliation with which, though it certainly lasted but a little while, his enemies did not forget to reproach him when he became conspicuous enough to excite malevolence. And let it be remembered for his honour that to have been once a schoolmaster is the only reproach which all the perspicacity of malice animated by wit has ever fixed upon his private life. Johnson's Works, Volume 8, page 36, end of footnote. Yet I am of opinion that the greatest abilities are not only not required for this office, but render a man less fit for it. Garrick, Johnson's pupil, Anno Domini, 1736. While we acknowledge the justness of Thompson's beautiful remark, delightful task to rear the tender thought and teach the young idea how to shoot, footnote, in the original to teach, season, spring, line 1149, Thompson is speaking not of masters but of parents, end of footnote. We must consider that this delight is perceptible only by a mind at ease, a mind at once calm and clear, but that a mind gloomy and impetuous like that of Johnson cannot be fixed for any length of time in minute attention, and must be so frequently irritated by unavoidable slowness and error in the advances of scholars, as to perform the duty with little pleasure to the teacher and no great advantage to the pupils. Footnote. In the life of Milton, Johnson records his own experience. Every man that has ever undertaken to instruct others can tell what slow advances he has been able to make, and how much patience it requires to recall vagrant inattention, to stimulate sluggish indifference, and to rectify absurd misapprehension. Johnson's Works, Volume 7, page 76. End of footnote. Good temper is a most essential requisite in a preceptor. Horace paints the character as bland. Ut puri solem dant crustula blandi doctores, elementa velantotiscere. Footnote. As masters fondly soothe their boys to read with cakes and sweetmeats. Francis Horace Satire, 1, line 25, end of footnote. Mrs. Johnson, Itar 27. Johnson was not more satisfied with his situation as the master of an academy than with that of the usher of a school. We need not wonder, therefore, that he did not keep his academy above a year and a half. From Mr. Garrick's account, he did not appear to have been profoundly reverenced by his pupils. 
his oddities of manner and uncouth gesticulations could not but be the subject of merriment to them and in particular the young rogues used to listen at the door of his bedchamber and peep through the keyhole that they might turn into ridicule his tumultuous and awkward fondness for mrs johnson whom he used to call by the familiar appellation of tetty or tetsy which like betty or betsy is provincially used as a contraction for elizabeth her christian name but which to us seems ludicrous when applied to a woman of her age and appearance mr garrick described her to me as very fat with a bosom of more than ordinary protuberance with swelled cheeks of a florid red produced by thick painting and increased by the liberal use of cordials flaring and fantastic in her dress and affected both in her speech and her general behaviour i have seen garrick exhibit her by his exquisite talent of mimicry so as to excite the heartiest bursts of laughter but he probably as is the case in all such representations considerably aggravated the picture Footnote. as johnson kept garrick much in awe when present david when his back was turned repaid the restraint with ridicule of him and his dulcinea which shall be read with great abatement percy he was not consistent in his account for he told mrs thrale that she was a little painted puppet of no value at all he made out mrs piozzi continues some comical scenes by mimicking her in a dialogue he pretended to have overheard i do not know whether he meant such stuff to be believed or no it was so comical the picture i found of her at lichfield was very pretty and her daughter said it was like mr johnson has told me that her hair was eminently beautiful quite blonde like that of a baby piozzi's anecdotes page one four eight end of footnote a scheme of study anno domini seventeen thirty six that johnson well knew the most proper course to be pursued in the instruction of youth is authentically ascertained by the following paper Footnote. mr croker points out that in this paper there are two separate schemes the first for a school the second for the individual studies of some young friend End of footnote. in his own handwriting given about this period to a relation and now in possession of mr john nichols scheme for the classes of a grammar school when the introduction or formation of nouns and verbs is perfectly mastered let them learn Cordelius by mr clark beginning at the same time to translate out of the introduction that by this means they may learn the syntax then let them proceed to erasmus with an english translation by the same author class two learns atropius and cornelius nepos or justin with the translation notabene the first class gets for their part every morning the rules which they have learned before 
and in the afternoon learns the Latin rules of the nouns and verbs. They are examined in the rules which they have learned every Thursday and Saturday. The second class does the same while they are in Eutropius. Afterwards their part is in the irregular nouns and verbs and in the rules for making and scanning verses. They are examined as the first. Class three, Ovid's Metamorphoses in the morning and Caesar's Commentaries in the afternoon. Practice in the Latin rules till they are perfect in them. Afterwards in Mr. Leeds's Greek Grammar, examined as before. Afterwards they proceed to Virgil, beginning at the same time to write themes and verses and to learn Greek. From thence passing on to Horace, etc., as shall seem most proper. I know not well what books to direct you to, because you have not informed me what study you will apply yourself to. I believe it will be most for your advantage to apply yourself wholly to the languages till you go to the university. The Greek authors I think it best for you to read are these. Cebes, Elian, Lucian by Leeds, Xenophon, Attic, Homer, Ionic, Theocritus, Doric, Euripides, Attic and Doric. Thus you will be tolerably skilled in all the dialects, beginning with the Attic, to which the rest must be referred. In the study of Latin, it is proper not to read the latter authors, till you are well versed in those of the purest ages, as Terence, Tully, Caesar, Sallust, Nepos, Velius, Tertullus, Virgil, Horace, Phaedrus. The greatest and most necessary task still remains, to attain a habit of expression, without which knowledge is of little use. This is necessary in Latin and more necessary in English, and can only be acquired by a daily imitation of the best and correctest authors. End of section nine.